You're on Radio 1, 91 FM, Politrix Show. With me on the phone right now, I have Paul Buchanan, intelligence analyst with 36th Parallel Consulting, well-known uh, in New Zealand media circles, uh, former academic here in New Zealand, and uh, well-versed on these intelligence and security issues. How are you today, Paul? I'm good. It's a gloomy day up here in Karekare, but uh, I'm otherwise good. That's great. Well, uh, we're lucky enough to have a little bit of sun down here, but um, there aren't very much rays of sunshine in the international political security realm, uh, given the current state of affairs with the Paris terrorist attacks. Um, I'm interested to get your take a little bit on, you know, how is this going to change the geopolitical landscape? Um, you know, whether advertent or inadvertent, we, we always see a lot of... Um, policy documents, um, you know, analysis summaries basically saying that there's, there's, uh, you know, various intents uh, in, uh, how do I want to say this? I guess certain policies can only be moved forward when there's, you know, large scale psychological upheavals that come from these sort of large events, major conflicts, terrorist attacks. Um, and in many ways, that's that's the purpose of the people who commit them. Uh, but governments uh, are never slow to react and get their own uh, purposes and motives sort of out there when these events occur. And I think we're about to see some of that unfolding. What what do you think? Well, I think if I was to rephrase you, I would simply say that fear mongering works for both sides. That is, uh, the perpetrators of this irregular violence, you know, irregular in the sense that it's a, a irregular form of war, uh, you know, want to promote fear in the subject populations. And it's interesting because in France and in the larger Europe, I think the intention is twofold. On the one hand, to harden the hatred of Muslims by right-wingers, conservatives, and nationalists and who will now say, we told you so, keep the refugees out, uh, and, uh, and things of that, that sort. But what is lesser known, I think, is that it's also designed to undermine the support by the left side of the political equation for refugee policy and for a continuation of the war against Daesh in the Middle East, because many people in France and elsewhere oppose the war in the Middle East on anti-imperialist grounds, on pacifist grounds, on anti-militarist grounds. And this gives them, I'd hate to use the pun, ammunition to say, why are we involved? This is, this is an Arab fight, and I happen to agree with that, that point of view. And if they get the, the right to harden in its attitude towards Muslims, both third generation, second generation, and recent immigrants, at the same time simultaneously getting the left to weaken in its support for government policies of intervention, then they will have accomplished a lot. In the meantime, and in parallel, security agencies throughout the world, but particularly in the West, will use this fear-mongering, in fact, they themselves will fear-monger, along with conservative politicians, uh, in pursuit of their own agendas. And we see this now in spades in the United States, where that GOP circus show has now turned into an anti-refugee narrative 
um, the heights of which, in terms of hypocrisy, is Marco Rubio, who is the son of refugees, now saying we should never take refugees. So, uh, so there's that partisan agenda, and then security agencies, uh, most recently the U.S. CIA, are now pointing out that uh, this is the reason why we need mass surveillance, more powers of search and surveillance, uh, and that sort of thing. So unfortunately, opportunists of all persuasions will jump in and use fear-mongering in order to pursue their agendas completely beyond and out of proportion to the threat posed by these irregular warfare events. And as you mentioned, you know, there seems to have been a shift in focus, um, at least in terms of the press releases coming out of intelligence agencies, towards, uh, you know, privacy technology, uh, blaming Silicon Valley for uh, giving encrypted communication, uh, mainstreaming it, essentially. Now, that... You know, the, yeah, these sort of attacks on privacy, sort of calculated statements to undermine privacy, especially in the um, case of the Paris attacks, where we don't even really have enough evidence. The blood isn't even dry yet to know whether encrypted communication was used. But it's so commonplace now. Um, you know, we're all using encryption every day. Um, but we see the focus shifting to basically saying anyone who uses these certain apps well they're with the terrorists uh we saw this with the bin laden book reading list uh a lot of books that appeal to sort of lefty political types there there seems to be this um yeah casting of aspersion on privacy advocates as uh supporters of terrorism uh yes unfortunately uh, the, the truth of the matter is that they they just want people to make their jobs easier by not encrypting, but, you know, let's be very clear. Uh, you know, like in the old days, signals intelligence was about code making and code breaking. You may remember the Navajo, Navajo uh, code talkers. Uh, mm. You know, the Americans used Navajo as uh, the language for their codes. Well, now uh, the signals intelligence business is about encryption and decryption. And the hard fact of the matter is this. There is no such thing as 100% secure encryption. Mm. What happens is really good encryption requires the NSA and the Five Eyes and the like to take their time. And so what they do, we've, and this is how we found this out thanks to Edward Snowden, is if they can't break the encryption right away, and you, they have like a 90% success rate at breaking things very, very quickly, but if they cannot, then they store it at the NSA storage site in uh, in Nevada, and then they put a team to work 24-7 to work on it until they can break it. So sooner or later, the encryption of, of the most encrypted apps will be broken. And the irony is this. Who were the first to use encryption in modern telecommunications? Well, it was the military. All these applications are derived from military technologies that have now trickled down into the civilian for-profit sector. So they actually have a leg up. You know, they have an advanced start on how encryption occurs, what types occur, even the so-called flash burst encryption. These are the things that you send up, people read them, and then the message destroys. Uh, that's what the military uses for its telecommunications. So. 
they're well aware of these apps. They know how to break them. They may not be 100% successful, but certainly if they turn it into a patriotic issue and start saying that those who use these apps are unpatriotic or facilitating jihadis and what have you, then in the measure that people stop encrypting their communications, it makes their lives a lot easier. Yeah, well, I find that really interesting because I feel like, if anything, we learned from the Snowden documents that the military-level enforcement agencies, they already have the back doors. They've undermined the encryption from the beginning. They've broken the standards. Uh, They've infiltrated the universities. Uh, This was all kind of laid out. Um, But is is this just kind of a push to to keep that secret it it, it seems like there was a a kind of you know pretend uh theatrics after the snowden leaks of the silicon valley company saying oh no we didn't actually do that and then kind of saying oh well we might have but now we're going to fix it that was never necessarily independently verified we just kind of took their word on it and now this is potentially a little bit of play acting to make it seem like a little bit more adversarial than it actually is. Uh, that, that is true. Here, this is how I understand um, the way things have gone between uh, the big, big signals collection agencies, particularly in the West, and large telecommunication firms. Uh, telecommunications firms, let's say like Google or Yahoo!, uh, were approached, and they were told, okay, look, at if you, uh, and, and before I even get into that, be aware that obviously a lot of the uh, commercial phones and things that you buy already have the back doors placed into them by agreement between the manufacturers and the security agencies. But telecommunications providers uh, were told, look, at, um, you can provide us a back door, and we will tell you what we're looking for on a selective basis, oftentimes with a warrant, but maybe not, in special circumstances, or we can try to hack into you and eventually get in anyway, but that's going to cost you a lot of money trying to defend against us. And we have unlimited resources, so it's going to become economically prohibitive for you to continue to try to defend against our relentless assaults to get in when you can provide us a back door. So a business decision was made on the part of places like Google to allow the authorities in on a selective basis, and then they sick their lawyers on them as much as possible, but they they agreed that it wasn't economically feasible to try to defend against these guys. Now, what's interesting about that is Kim.com. My understanding is that what Kim.com did was not about copyright infringement. The cardinal sin that he committed, the mortal sin that he committed, was that when he was approached, by the security agencies, particularly those of the United States, the NSA in particular, and and asked if he would provide a back door into his cloud because there was a suspicion that jihadis were using it to communicate. He said no. In fact, he was rude. He said, F you, I'm not doing that because my business is predicated on the privacy of my customers. You don't say F you to the NSA. That's a very bad idea. And he did. And you see the results now. You know, they are going to hound him. I, I'm, I'm of the opinion he will be extradited, and then very bad things will happen to him. Uh, so it was, you know, you're put between a rock and a hard place by the intelligence agencies. You know, you either give it up willingly under, you know, certain conditions and rules, or they will work to death 
to make it economically, you know, bankrupt you if necessary, in order to they get into those back doors. So, or to create their own back door. Excuse me. So uh, that's the situation we're in today. You know, I think most commercial entities, uh, again, given the clamor about patriotism and given the dangers of terrorism and whatnot, are more than willing to cooperate with security agencies to provide them with backdoor tools to access the information of their clients. And then they try to make sure that it's warranted, that the lawyers are all over it, that it's legal. But quite frankly, um, you know, we've discovered time and time again after the Snowden revelations that particularly the Five Eyes have continued business as usual. What they've had to do is change some of their protocols and, you know, they've had to mix things up as a result of the revelations, but they haven't stopped, even though there's been legislation enacted in the United States and elsewhere designed to stop the type of things that Snowden revealed. But as you say, this, uh, you know, this heightened rhetoric, um, tying the two things together in the media, you know, if people voluntarily disassociate themselves because of that, it is only going to make their job easier. Um, the other thing I'm interested in is, you know, in terms of, like, classic geopolitics, major powers vying for each other, all the proxy wars in the Middle East um, that has given rise to this phenomenon of ISIS... How is that going to change? It's a very fluid situation over there in Syria. Uh, Russia is upping their game, um, and that's been welcomed by some people, but not so much by others. Given that the situation in Syria kind of originally developed out of a proxy war and arguments over military basing between the major powers, is this detente that we're starting to see real, or um, how, how do you think the, the shockwaves from Paris will affect these alliances? Well, I think that uh, the the entrance of the Russians into the fray, I'm one of the few Western analysts who actually welcomes the entrance of Russia. And let me just, just preface what I'm about to say by explaining something about Russian strategic interests. Of all the non-Middle uh, Eastern countries, Russia has the greatest strategic interest in Syria. It has a, naval, a long-standing naval base. Uh, it's only so-called warm water port uh, in Syria, uh, dating back to the Soviet days. There are 100,000 Russian citizens living in Syria as a result of intermarriage that occurred during the Soviet era. Many, many of the Syrian elite went to Moscow for their university educations and married into Russian families. Uh, they obviously have Assad as one of their biggest client states. Uh, you know, both in not only in terms of weapons, uh, but also in terms of trade, you know, just straight economic trade. And so if you look at it objectively, the Russians have the most skin in the game in the Syrian civil war, and they held back, they held back, they held back, even though Assad was their man. Now, Assad is expendable. It's his regime, the support base, the Alawite support base, which is Shia, that is important to Russia because they will guarantee Russian strategic interests. This is much more about Russian interests than it is about Assad or Syria. And so they waited, waited, waited. And then eventually when Assad uh, was proved incapable of defeating the rebels, they've stepped in. But even then, they stepped in in a cautious way. Now, on the other side of the ledger, we have to remember that 
when Obama was, was elected, one of his principal mandates was to withdraw U.S. troops from the never-ending conflicts that the Bush administration had got it into. The American public was war-weary, just had had enough. And quite frankly, the U.S. military is exhausted. I mean, people may not know, but for the first time in nearly 50 years, the U.S. does not have a carrier in the Persian Gulf, and that's simply because they can't sustain the rate of deployment. There are U.S. Army personnel that are on their 11th or 12th deployment. The average for a, an enlisted person with six years of service is about four deployments uh, during war times, and those deployments are six months in length. There are people now, I mean, and when I say people, you know, hundreds of people in the U.S. Army who have done over 10 deployments, and let's just say that they're burnt out. They may be hardened combat veterans, but you don't want them coming home because, let's just say, the headlights are on all the time. Mm. So uh, the U.S. is exhausted, and it may be, a, you know, a great power, but even great powers can't sustain the tempo of operations that the United States military has done for now, you know, 15 years. And let's and there was all sorts of low-intensity conflicts before 9-11, so uh, they pretty much need to take a break. Well, when Obama withdrew the troops from Iraq, of course, he could not have envisioned the incompetence and corruption of the Malachi regime. Mm that led to, that allowed the, 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 the rise of ISIS because the Iraqi army wouldn't fight. But uh, the U.S. needed to take a break. Well, the good news here is that the attacks in Paris have crystallized European military focus on the war. In, they're, 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 they're linked wars, Syria and Iraq. And with the Russians in the game, and with the capability of cooperation between the Western members of the coalition and Russia, there could well be the ability to take on, uh, I prefer to call them Daesh simply because it's an insult, uh, uh, to take on Daesh and defeat them in the territorial war of conquest and reconquest that is occurring in Syria and Iraq. And if you're able to defeat them, then you can remove the training grounds, the propaganda centers that are the lifeblood of the urban guerrilla war that is the parallel war going on in Europe. Now, the idea, uh, I guess, just to wrap up, that, um, you know, the narrative of Russia coming to the rescue of Europe doesn't seem like the the type of narrative that um, you know the U.S. military industrial complex has been going to great lengths to sort of uh, lay out over the last couple of years. Are they going to be happy with uh, abrupt reorientation to that type of narrative, or are we going to see some kind of um, unexpected lashing out? Well, I mean, they may, you know, in public, they may, uh, and of course. Uh, U.S. politicians are doing this as we speak. Uh, there's a lot of anti-Russian sentiment in the United States, and so there's all this negativity. But, um, I, you know, I've, I've said this in other pu public forums, but without uh, the Russians and Iraq at the, uh, excuse me, Iran at the negotiating table, the Syrian civil war will never, will never be, uh, be ended. And here's the irony. It's, it was an issue of priorities. The Russians have said all along, 
what we have to do is is attack uh, Daesh ISIS first, eliminate them, and then we'll talk about a negotiated transition to a post-Assad regime that may or may not involve him. He may stick around for a while, but it is very clear that we will have to have a different type of regime with more Sunni representation. Uh, but the Alawites need to have certain security guarantees and the like for this for this thing to be resolved peacefully. The West, on the other hand, said, no, Assad has to go. And we won't deal with you until Assad goes. Well, you know what? The Russians have been proven right. The Russians ha- had the right idea all along, and they're trying to, their first strikes have been against the non-Daesh components of the rebel alliance well that was simply to make their point you know to say look we'll pound these guys until you you come around to the view that uh we have to work together against daesh and we have to negotiate a transition but you can't make an ultimatum of assad having to leave before we defeated daesh i mean that's that's ridiculous and the west has come around to their point of view that's good that's good. Now they can start talking military to military, as they did yesterday when uh, the Russians sent in long-range bombers. I mean, mm. I thought that was fascinating. Yes, they sent things from from uh, the Russian mainland on long round trips to bomb Raqqa. And you know what they did? For the first time, they invoked the communications protocol with the U.S. Air Force, so that they were telling the U.S. fighter pilots that were in the air in the area, we're coming. Uh, you know, you have to give us safe passage because we're headed. This is our target, uh, and they did. You know, the Americans cleared the airspace and let these guys come in uh, from a distance, which also shows the reach. See, this is all. There's a lot of symbolism in all of this. You know, they're the Russians are trialing some of their newest weaponry. Um, they're showing that they can mount an expeditionary force because Ukraine was interesting, but that's close to Russia. Mm. But this is far away, so they're you know they're flexing their muscles, and um, I actually don't think it's such a bad thing because it's going to eventually reestablish a balance of power both in the region and globally that may not necessarily be as bad as people think. And I'll leave you with this thought: I'm an old-time realist, I and mean, I was educated by realists. The uh, most stable uh, global system is known as a multipolar system, mm. usually with three to five great powers all balancing and shifting and, and whatnot against each other, but keeping a more or less steady alliance structure and keeping each other in check. The least stable system, short of anarchy, is a unipolar system, which is exactly what we had for 20 years after the end of the Cold War. And the reason for that is that many aspiring powers will not sit by and allow one country to gl- to dominate global discourse. So what we're seeing here, and we've been seeing pretty much since 9/11, given uh, the absolutely, uh, well, you know, it, uh, how can I put it nicely? I won't put it nicely. The absolutely stupid response of the Bush administration to the provocation that was 9/11 is a uh, shift towards multipolarity uh, away from the unipolarity of uh, the United States in the 90s, and that's both military as well as economic. I mean, we've heard of the BRICS, and some of those BRICS, China in particular, is also a military power. But we're moving towards a multipolar world, and unfortunately the shift from 
from unipolarity to multipolarity. Whenever there's a systemic shift in the uh, in the global system, uh, those shifts are characterized by conflict. Mm. And so conflict is the system's regulator, but the system will regulate, and we're, that's the times that we are living in. Well, that is a, uh, you know, quite a, a well-described expert analysis. We thank you so much for sharing it with us, and uh, I'm sure it's not going to be the last time we talk about this issue, and probably not the last time we talk to you either, Paul. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. No, the pleasure was mine. Thanks a lot. Cheers. That was Paul Buchanan, 36th Parallel Consulting, well-known New Zealand political intelligence commentator. Uh, really special to have him on the show, and I think he's right. Um, you know, the fact that long-range bombers left from Russia, bombed Syria, and returned to Russia coordinating with the U.S. Air Force, that's pretty much the U.S. throwing in the towel uh, when you look at these symbolic geostrategic military moves. Um, watch this space.